Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this episode of the podcast, we look back at another one of our cross-border webinars. This episode, entitled Human Rights in Business, Practical Challenges of Conducting Research with Impact. In the emerging academic field of business and human rights, conducting research with real-world impact is the declared objective of many researchers. It is a field in which individual research interests and advocacy for human rights are often closely aligned. Companies under pressure to manage human rights challenges also welcome research on applied research questions. They hope for scholarly guidance on implementation challenges and results that are readily applicable in corporate practice. However, Setting up research projects that meet the sometimes paradoxical requirements from academia and practice poses many challenges for researchers in this field. In this webinar, examples are provided from work conducted through the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights. Sarah Kramer uh, is uh, first up, as I see her currently on my screen, she's a consultant at the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights, and Dorothy Bowman-Pauli, who is the director for the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights and research director for the Center for Business and Human Rights at the NY Stern School of Business. Thanks to you both uh, for sharing the hour with us. I know it's a very busy time for all. We appreciate in advance all the insights that you'll be sharing. So, uh, Doro and uh, Sarah, I hand over to you. Hi, Rob. Thank you. And hi, everyone. Um, such a nice introduction of you. And thank you to the GBSN team for preparing this event. The Geneva School of Economics and Management is a fairly new member um, to GBSN. And this is also the first webinar that we are doing together. And um, there's been a lot of webinars lately, but I'm particularly excited about this one because producing research that has impact uh, and advances human rights in practice is so much core of our mission um, uh, that uh, I'm, I'm keen to share how we've approached um, this sometimes challenges, a challenging vision. And uh, I'm, I'm keen to hear from you. And I'm happy that Rob emphasized um, the interest uh, of exchange here. And please use the chat function to send us questions throughout. We will leave enough time for that exchange in the end. And I'm keen to hear from you if you have reactions, thoughts, or your experiences to share in that quest for producing research that has a concrete impact. Um, Initially, you know, we prepared two polls because I'd love to have a slightly better sense of um, who is with us today. Um, so the first question I have, how many of you are currently working on the business human, in the broader business human rights sphere? Because of course, this is a field um, that drives the desire um, to produce impact. Uh, it's, it's particularly pronounced, I would say, in that research um, field. So um, I can see the poll has come up. So please let us know, are you uh, amongst our BHR colleagues um, or is that not a, a field that you typically uh, have engaged in in the past? I saw Bjorn saying hello to everyone. I know he is a BHR colleague. <laughs> um, so uh, thanks for filling out uh, that question. Our um, examples today, also there are actually three quarters of you are from the BHR field. Our examples today are from that context. Um, and you don't have to be from this field um, to, to, to relate to what we will be presenting to you, but 
um, it's helpful for me to understand how much you know about business human rights. So three quarters of you are actually close colleagues from our field. Another question we have uh, for you to understand um, your interest in this event is um, whether you're already part of an impact scholar community, because this is clearly a trending topic. Um, there is growing interest, I would say, of uh, management scholars to produce research with impact. And so I'd like to know if you're already part of um, an, an organization that promotes this. I know there's the Impact Scholar community led by Tima Bansal, for example. And so um, there are other networks out there that have a special focus on research with impact. And I think this is a, a trend and a, a growing um, community. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for your interest today, irrespective of whether you come from the business human rights field or generally from uh, you know, an, an interest that drives you to produce research with impact. Yes, about half-half. Half of you are already parts of other organizations. So seeing this, it's great. Maybe in the last bit, when we have time to interact, you know, the ones that are part of other uh, impact-focused communities, maybe they can speak up and also see how we could link to them. Because I'm, I'm keen to learn from others. That's why we set up this, um, this webinar as well. So my colleague, Sarah, who I haven't introduced yet, um, she's with me today and she, um, I've been working with her in the context of NYU Stern um, starting two years ago. And she's been with me uh, on this particular project that we have um, conducted on the sustainable sourcing practices of cobalt um, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. She's been with me um, from the beginning uh, and She's worked with me on the substantive research parts, but also on the many practical challenges that we experienced throughout. And um, we will use this research project as the illustration of a methodology that we've developed to design research with impact. So the impact focus is built into the research design from the beginning. The mission of the Geneva Center, as you can see up here on the screen, is very much aligned with the mission of the NYU Stern Center for Business Human Rights. And the project that we will use as the illustration today was a collaboration project between those two centers. Um, I'm part-time part of uh, part-time in Geneva and part-time in New York, so 50-50. And Sarah uh, initially worked with me at Stern, and then I hired her in Geneva. Um, so we also, we both have a split um, uh, appointment. This is our team in Geneva. After all, this is, was an invitation to the new GVSM member to the Geneva School for Economics and Management. Uh, currently, we're the first um, human rights center on human rights in uh, Europe, fully institutionalized. And here you can see our team. We all work part-time, so this looks uh, bigger than it actually is. Um, but it gives you a sense of who's behind this. And uh, at the Geneva Center, we have uh, different focus areas. Um, so we look at human rights challenges as industry specific challenges, and we currently work in different industries on extractives, agriculture, finance, education, and security. 
Um, the education bucket uh, is really closely aligned with GBSN as a core partner in advancing human rights and business education. And since last week, also with the principles for responsible management education, where we had, have relaunched the working group on business and human rights to make sure that the type of work we do also becomes part of education. So if that's of interest to you, you can also reach out to the GBSM team or to me directly um, to indicate that you would like to become part of that business education focused work that we do. But today we will use the project that we have um, uh, led in the extractives focus area as the illustration for how we hope to design a research methodology that builds impact into the process from the start. Next slide, please. So here you can see in, in very broad strokes the methodology um, as we've set it up. Um, so like all good academics, we start with a diagnostic part, um, which often starts with desk research and you know, pulling together everything that's out there on a given research question. But our research question is already driven by very practical interests in that we're not starting out looking for a theory gap um, as many other researchers do, but instead we look at what do companies need today to navigate um, business and human rights, um, an interest to grow their business at the same time, conduct business in a principled way. And there's, uh, there are more and more business and human rights challenges. And so we pick up those practical challenges and bring them as a research question to uh, phase one, which is mostly a diagnostic um, phase um, where we can start with desk research, pulling together everything out there from academic articles, but also um, civil society reports. And we want to understand what different perspectives have to say about this specific um, problem. And in phase two, um, we're then subsuming everything we know and arrive at, uh, we analyze what's out there and we arrive at clear recommendations for companies and policymakers to uh, move forward. And that first phase for us always includes um, seeing with our own eyes. So typically it includes field visits, interviews, um, engagement with people that are on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, concerned with the, the, the problem in question. And the anal analysis is then put into a report, so not in an academic publication, but in a report that is written in a language that we hope is accessible to a broad group of um, stakeholders. And it concludes with clear recommendations, as I said, for policymakers and companies um, to outline a way forward. So academic publications sometimes have a section on practical implications, but I don't think uh, I've ever seen such clear recommendations for what to do <laughs> in an academic publication than the one that we have uh, included in our report. And this is a model, the diagnostic and an analysis part and writing reports with such recommendations that I've certainly learned and um, evolved uh, uh, over my initial years with NYU Stern, where 
I think over the course of the past eight years of the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, we've published a total of like 15 reports or so on uh, very different practical uh, industry-specific business human rights challenges. In phase three, we then uh, engage with key stakeholders that can make things happen, that can pick up those key recommendations from our report and put them into practice. So we are not an implementing um, organization in any way, but um, the publication of our results, I consider it as the end of the beginning in that we now know enough to have a vision for the way forward. And now we wanna make sure that this vision is being put into practice. So that's the engagement phase where we then try to identify organizations that can carry that vision forward and put it into practice. It involves engagement with companies and, and, and others. And then of course, we don't want that our insights get lost, but it should help the next generation of leaders to come better prepared to manage future business human rights challenges. And we really wanna bring our insights back into teaching. Um, so it's important to us that every project is also translated into a teaching tool. Um, in the form of a specific case study that we write or um, last year for the very first time and with the help of GBSN, we drafted a micro simulation and we'll get to that in a second. But now I wanna use our work on COBALT um, to illustrate those four phases and I'll hand over to Sarah to walk you through um, those four phases and illustrate them with concrete actions in each phase. Thank you, Doral. Um, in this part of our presentation, we would like to tell you a bit more about how we implemented the methodology in the extractives work stream, uh, which in our case uh, refers to responsible cobalt mining. Um, let me give you some background as to why we were interested in this topic in the first place. We were initially fascinated by the uh, dichotomy between the transition to clean energy with electric vehicles paving the way for a more sustainable future and then the lesser known uh, human cost of this transition specifically in the battery supply chain uh, consumers who are conscious and who are looking to minimize the harm their purchasing decisions have on the planet often are unaware of the uh, the human rights implications their purchasing decisions have thousands of miles away, and in this case, um, in Africa. That's because over for the cobalt mining, because that's um, that's because seventy percent of uh, cobalt uh, global cobalt supply is probably the quest for, um, as we all are hearing, it building back better post COVID. The Biden administration's climate plan. We see that this trend for renewable energy and uh, the demand for electric vehicles is only accelerating. And all of these developments reinforce the timeliness of addressing human rights risks in the Congolese cobalt supply chain. And so we decided to make uh, this, uh, this field our focus area or one of the focus areas at the center. Under the first leg of our research methodology, which is the diagnosis phase, as Dora explained, we conducted desk research throughout the summer of 2019 in New York City at NYU. Um, specifically, we went through hundreds of news articles, read local mining laws and decrees, international due diligence guidelines, hundreds of academic and non-academic reports and investigative reports. We analyzed the data, identified the key players, identified uh, certain pilot projects of importance, um, in the cobalt supply chain, 
We conducted interviews with various stakeholders, such as representatives of civil society, industry alliances, and academics before heading to the field. Um, in September 2019, and you can see it um, in the picture on the right-hand side, Dorothy flew to Lubumbashi in the DRC. And while she was there for eight days, she visited three pilot projects that aimed to formalize the small-scale artisanal mining of cobalt. She interviewed over 30 uh, stakeholders, local stakeholders, who are all listed in the final report we published. Now, this research project was a collaboration between our center, the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights at the University of Geneva, and the Center for Business and Human Rights at uh, NYU Stern School of Business, where Doro um, is also a research director. And the research trip part of the project was supported by the Global Battery Alliance, which is a sub-initiative of the World Economic Forum. In the analysis phase of this research, um, Dora drafted and I edited a preliminary situational analysis, which we then developed into a longer expert assessment that was published under the WEF white paper series. In this slide, you see um, the recommendations uh, we made in our paper. We finalized this paper in June, but publishing with uh, the WEF meant soliciting input from numerous parties. So our paper was sent to several industry players, civil society, and international organizations linked to the cobalt supply chain who provided their comments. Following a very long editing process, the white paper was published in September 2020. Um, our paper describes the conditions at the three formalization projects that Dora visited. More importantly, based on our analysis of the data and our findings on the ground, our paper makes practical recommendations for a common set of standards to be developed and implemented effectively. And uh, one, of our, one of the recommendations that we made in the paper is the case for collective action. As in many contexts, the DRC mining, cobalt mining context also poses challenges that are too great for any single actor to take on alone. Uh, we believe in multi-stakeholder platforms and we'll believe that they can help pool and share knowledge and resources. And that leads me to the, my next slide, uh, which is phase three engagement. While we call phase three the engagement phase of our methodology, we are actually engaging with stakeholders throughout all phases. Uh, we do this from the outset of our projects. To remember how we engaged at each step along the way, in the diagnosis phase, we interviewed and consulted various stakeholders. In phase two, the um, analysis phase, we obtained comments on our white paper from various players uh, linked to the Congolese cobalt supply chain. And phase three is where we engage with implementing organizations to promote our recommended path forward, while also communicating our message and recommendations through various media outlets. And here on this slide, you see a sample of those, uh, some of the articles, op-eds, and blog posts that we have published right around the time that our uh, web paper was also published, including um, Doro's piece on uh, the Council on Foreign Relations in October 2020. The third one, uh, you see Mike Posner, the director of NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, his um, op-ed in Forbes, from um, also October 2020, and he refers to our paper uh, in this Forbes article, and then the piece Dora and I authored for the conversation in November of last year. 
we are also a part of one. Since the spring of 2020, we have been working with the Cobalt Action Partnership, which is a multi-stakeholder initiative that is part of the Global Battery Alliance, which is under the umbrella of the WEF. Um, and through this partnership, we are working to raise awareness to arrive at a common standard for sourcing Congolese cobalt. And that is in line with the DRC's local laws and standards and strategies, as well as industry and consumer expectations. And now I come to phase four, the teaching phase. Oops, sorry. Um, we translate our work in, in phase four teaching. We translate, we translate our work from the first three phases into our teaching. Dora teaches an undergrad course on business and human rights at the University of Geneva. She will also teach a graduate class in the newly announced master's in responsible management degree, which uh, will be um, offered under the Geneva School of Economics and Management as of this September. She is also often invited to teach cobalt in other classes. Uh, for example, she will soon uh, teach contribute to a course on global strategy at the business school um, at the University of Geneva. Also uh, on the right-hand side, right side, you see the book that um, Dora co-authored with Justine Nolan of the University of New South Wales. And there will be a second follow-up volume to this textbook on uh, business and human rights, which will focus on implementation challenges and also feature our cobalt research as a case study. Um, one other new activity that we are launch launching under phase four um, teaching is a business and human rights clinic, which will be the first uh, human rights clinic at a business school, we believe globally. Um, starting from the fall semester this year, we will have students uh, who are enrolled in this clinic take on um, real concrete human rights challenges that one of our co-founding companies um, is currently facing. And that challenge could very well be uh, linked to the extractive sector, depending on who the supporting organizations are in that specific um, term. Doro also opened uh, University of Geneva spring semester less than a month ago. The opening lecture, uh, for those who don't know it, is a very prestigious event for the um, academic community in Geneva. And this year, Dora gave an excellent and a very timely presentation on the challenge of human rights in business, where she touched upon our cobalt work stream. And if you're interested, you can watch that on uh, Unigay's uh, University of Geneva's YouTube channel, both in English and in French. Now, before I move on to the challenges of conducting research uh, or this research specifically, I want to mention two tools, which you can see on the slide. On the left, uh, left side, you see the CAPSIM microsimulation we created. CAPSIM, um, as you may know, is a partner of the Global Business School Network, and we developed a case study through their simulation lab based on our learnings from this research project. Um, we will have uh, 130 something students uh, this semester who are taking Dora's uh, undergrad course uh, go through the simulation and um, they will be uh, put in a, in the position of a CSR manager in a mining company and will and the, the simulation will ask them to take to make decisions under various challenging circumstances um, by providing input news articles etc throughout the, the simulation. The second tool, which is uh, the, the picture, the image in the middle, is the Cobalt Knowledge Hub. And this is a product of our Cobalt research, this research that I'm right now um, explaining. And you can find that on our website, gcbhr.org. Um, this hub compiles over 80 recent academic and non-academic reports and papers relevant to cobalt mining and the battery supply chain. And we created the Knowledge Hub with the hopes that it would serve the wider research community and also to invite and facilitate further research on this specific topic. I'm updating this knowledge hub uh, regularly, but in case we missed a publication, it's not there, please send it to us and we will include it. 
Now, the reason why I'm focusing on the phase four teaching part is, and why I'm mentioning all these different tools and the ways of integrating our research into teaching um, is to underline the various methods we at the center use or, and the, the various platforms we use to convey our message. So we engage not only with government representatives, local communities, companies, industry alliances, civil society and academia, but also with business students who are tomorrow's business leaders. Um, and that was also part of our mission statement um, on slide two. By exposing students to the findings of our research and having them listen to and discuss our recommendations on how to respect and integrate human rights into commercial operations, into the supply and value chains, um, we generate the impact in the long run through future business leaders. We empower them with the vision that to develop sustainable and uh, sustainable business models that, that create value for society and business. And here um, on this, my well, my last slide, not on the last slide, but my slide, um, I'd like to also talk about the specific practical challenges we had to tackle uh, when we were conducting our research in cobalt sourcing. The first uh, practical challenge was setting up a research project that is independent. So as I said, the research trip was funded by the Global Battery Alliance. And even though we could easily pay for the expenses from our own budgets, um, asking an alliance under the WEF, ensure that the WEF was invested in this, that they would take it, uh, they would push it through the, till the end. And um, yeah, you know, the, the, the reimbursement processes, also the, the steps that we had to go through to uh, get funding uh, through a university, the directives that we had to comply with, all of that was a lot of bureaucratic steps. But um, the, this, this symbolic payment that came from the WEF was very critical for our output. If this had not been a WEF product that they had ownership of, then they could have easily pulled out of it. So, um, and, and in terms of setting up the research, there were also other challenges such as, especially regarding the field research. For example, there was the lengthy visa application process that Dora had to go through, the concerns around security during the trip um, and requesting an exception from the university, for example, to their security guidelines. Um, and there was also um, escalating violence at the time in the Northern provinces of the DRC. So it made it all complicated and they, these were all challenges. Then the second major challenge was the extensive editing process. As I mentioned, we, we submitted the paper in June 2020, but it took another three months to publish it. We strategically chose the World Economic Forum white paper series to publish under um, because it allowed us the, to reach the right audience, right, the, the business world. But we didn't know that the editorial stage would be a collective process involving 12 different stakeholders or 12 different parties. Um, obtaining and sifting through all the paragraphs of comments, which I did, uh, was really tiring um, because, and, and it wasn't tiring because it's a lot of comments, but because they weren't necessarily substantive comments, they were um, also highly politicized. So with each set of input, we found ourselves, you know, defending our um, uh, objective objective researcher position and we were trying to prevent um, our paper from becoming a political output that served some party's agenda um, but you cannot isolate yourself from such politics if you want to conduct research with uh, impact so it requires courage to go down this route and um, i believe dora can speak more to this 
And finally, the third challenge that I want to mention is, or that we encountered, was the politics around multi-stakeholder initiatives. We believe that the most legitimate way to ensure the uptake of our recommendations was an MSI process. So we pushed through the GBA, the Global Battery Alliance, to create a sub-initiative, which I mentioned briefly, the CAP, uh, the Cobalt Action Partnership. But engaging in an MSI um, to advance our recommendations was also the peak of politics for us. Um, just to give you an idea, it took us six months uh, of um, energy and time and you know weekly meetings to even get to the starting point of agreeing on that common vision, which I'm still sometimes not convinced has happened. Um, the partnership's goal is to identify a common set of standards for the responsible sourcing of cobalt from artisanal mines um, in the DRC. Yet, um, still today, we see there are forces uh, in our group that prefer to have a more relaxed version of standards. They call it a continuous improvement ESG framework, which of course would take longer to achieve, um, but that is also in the interest of some of the partners. And we are also aware that MSIs receive a lot of criticism nowadays, and we certainly don't wanna be uh, a part of a group, uh, an initiative that just creates a facade of uh, responsible business conduct. We are committed to creating our, our impact through our engagement in groups of other committed players. And our ultimate goal is to support the process that will eventually improve the working and living conditions for artisanal miners and local mining communities. So with that, um, I'll hand it back over to Doro to talk about the agriculture work stream and how we are adjusting our methodology, given that we are all still um, going through a pandemic. Sarah, thank you so much. This was really comprehensive and fantastic, but I do <laughs> want to uh, offer a couple more comments on the previous slide. Go ahead. Um, because up to this slide, you know, going systematically through the four phases that we have identified as critical for our research with impact quest uh, sounded for sure really idealistic and really smooth. But I'm most grateful that Sarah was with me throughout the entire process because it's been a tough ride. Um, and I, I really don't wanna gloss over that and you know, uh, ensuring research independence, um, you know, which Sarah spoke on in this first bucket, just setting up this project in a way that uh, allows us to conduct our work fully independently, yet in collaboration with partners that can open doors to uh, us in that in the form of accessing partners that otherwise would not speak to us was was absolutely important. And indeed, um, the um, uh, set up this project with the Global Battery Alliance having in mind you know that this is the way to have access to key industry players but and also be able to publish in a white paper series eventually that reaches those players again so we can mirror back to them on uh, our insights and um, research independence if you travel to the congo is always somewhat compromised and that yes you need the invitation letter from a company ideally you need, um, I needed a, a driver who also doubled as my security guard. Um, someone else had to make the hotel reservations. And these were not just, you know, side notes to how, how do you actually get there and how do you get to speak to people on the ground? Um, uh, I interviewed female minors. I think the gender aspect of um, 
mining is completely under explored and they don't speak French. So um, I had to uh, use um, someone to help with the translation. And so there were a lot of practical challenges also as I was on the ground um, to actually answer our research question, namely how can companies set up sustainable sourcing practices from a very challenging context, namely the DRC. Um, you also engage with government actors there that, you know, you, you know the DRC is one of the most corrupt countries in the world and they, they tell you all kinds of things. Um, uh, on that picture, you actually saw the governor of Lualaba province that immediately took me to a construction site and explained the big plans he has to me and everything you hear needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, indeed, um, the engagement with the World Economic Forum then in the publication phase turned out to be particularly complicated because as they saw our work that is also critical of companies and member companies, they felt they need to send this out to 12 organizations indeed to get their input and including to let companies us, yeah including companies to let us figure out how to reconcile completely irreconcilable perspectives because many of them were truly political yet um we we held on to our idea to publish with the web because that guaranteed us the platform um to companies that we really wanted to reach but it was painful. So, um, and then yes, the the engagement phase. Um, I mean, I'm I'm proud that we got the Global Battery Alliance with many others, and I hope uh, you know the study that we did contributed to a tipping point to get this Global Battery Alliance that was not known as the most dynamic organization to a point that it created a sub initiative on cobalt, namely the Cobalt Action Partnership that picked up our main recommendation from the report, namely that we as a multi-stakeholder group need to define one common standard for artisanally mined cobalt from the DRC. So that focus area has been picked up. And now of course, um, multi-stakeholder processes are often messy and we're in the middle of it. Um, and we're trying to um, focus the group on the development of a standard. And it's been incredibly time intensive for the past eight months. Um, I spend about a day per week on just that activity. And of course, I do not get any academic credit for that. Um, but I believe this is, you know, the best use of our academic insights. Um, so this said, indeed, I want to just briefly comment on our um, work in the agriculture sector, where we try to replicate our model. Um, which of course during times of a pandemic is not so easy because we do have to compromise to a certain degree on the um, priority we have, namely seeing with our own eyes, nobody can travel right now. Um, and uh, we've set up a new project to investigate uh, the medium and long-term impacts of COVID on migrant workers in the Indian sugar and coffee supply chain. And um, this was a research question put to us by a company, a company that pointed out that they are not the only ones interested in this, but the entire industry is interested in that. They want independent research to be done on this question. They would like to better understand how their sourcing practices impact uh, human rights in the coffee and uh, sugar supply chain in India, particularly during during this pandemic. Um, and 
Uh, they brought in another company immediately to co-design the project with us. They put some money behind it um, and said they would actually pitch the project to larger industry consortiums so that other companies would join. And we took that on because we saw the timeliness of the request and we also saw the interest of this one company, and I can tell you it's Nestlé, to bring in many others to pitch in. Um, we started uh, with Nestlé's funding and the consortium funding hasn't come through yet. So currently um, we're starting a project in module one, which will last six months with one company only. And I don't think that's ideal. I would have loved to start with the two companies that co-designed the project with us and then bring in many others. And that hasn't happened yet. But for the sake of timeliness, you know, we wanted to get started. So we started and now I'm uncertain whether, you know, the consortium funding of companies will actually come through. Second practical challenge we are experiencing in this project is, of course, that we uh, cannot travel to India, but we knew that as we uh, accepted to work on this research question. And to make up for it, we have now created, thanks to contacts of GBSN and Prime, uh, a mini research consortium uh, of local academic institutions in India to help us and um, support the research with puzzle pieces of knowledge that we may not be able to get from here or from the interviews with company representatives. Um, and then a, another practical challenge in this context is um, that in the interview process, we realize that industry players in the same industry often don't know what each one is doing. And uh, in a recent conversation with Coca-Cola, we actually learned that they have conducted this exact project just in the past few weeks on the sugar supply chain. So not on coffee, but on sugar. So it was sort of a case of, well, Nestle was interested to kick this off and lead, not understanding what another key industry player is already doing. And so one key recommendation may, might be to actually team up. Um, so that uh, different practical challenges um, and the uh, uh, four phases as neat as they looked as we you know, started this presentation are always quite messy in practice. Um, but creating what some called a playbook for research that has an impact focus built into the process from the outset, um, I think is something that particularly researchers in the business human rights field should consider. And uh, although it's often painful and a lot of portions of the work don't get you the academic credit um, that you, uh, many of you need, neither in the form of the type of publications we do. I mean, I've written so many op-eds now on the cobalt uh, issue. Um, and of course, this is not an academic publication um, and it doesn't count towards your promotion, for example, in, your, in the academic system. Um, and the time that I have spent in the Cobalt Action Partnership, this multi-stakeholder initiative, there are no academic incentives for doing this, but these are the portions that certainly drive my motivation for being in uh, in this world and you know uh, starting out with research to derive robust recommendations but then not drop the ball and not end the process you know with the publication but this is where a second phase truly starts and this is I think where you can push 
together with many others, you know, a, a field to a tipping point so that practice actually adopts different practices. And so that's been uh, our experience. And um, I'm, I'm keen to hear from you uh, how, how you've um, addressed the challenge of designing research with impact. And if you have recommendations for us for how to do things better um, or what else we could consider and integrate to, to improve our processes. I thank you and I look forward to hearing from you. So I, I wanna thanks so much, Doro and Sarah, and I wanna remind everyone to please uh, post your, your questions and your comments as many of you have, of you have been doing in the chat section. And I'll uh, jump straight in with, with uh, one or two as you continue to submit some more. This is from Bjorn, uh, who's wondering to what extent and to which extent you're not doing the job that companies should be doing by themselves when they carry out due diligence. Uh, hi, Bjorn. So we are offering a radically different perspective. This is not consulting work for companies. Um, and I think uh, our research results speak for themselves and that they're not very comfortable um, for many companies. I mean, we really hold their feet to the fire here. So we want to empower them, the companies, but we also challenge them. So um, the uh, you know, notion that companies should conduct human rights due diligence is great, but what does human rights due diligence actually mean if you're a company in need of cobalt um, is in really unclear. And so how can we make human rights due diligence move beyond going through the moves of we have a policy and we look into our supply chain, which is all nice and good, but what should be the common industry standards um, is a process which I think we can't just skip over. Um, with the human rights due diligence requirement. And for this, you know, I think we can provide substantive input through our observations from the ground and through our engagement in a multi-stakeholder process that can legitimately set such substantive standards beyond the procedural human rights due diligence requirement. So um, we're not doing the job that companies should be doing. Um, but I, I would say we get them to a point to engage in a process that can then define substantive standards that can be measured and to which companies can be held to account. And this is an element that um, is needed for making human rights due diligence requirements meaningful in any way. And I would add that we're not there to audit the project. We're not there to look at what are the risks to the business. That's what a human rights due diligence consultant would do. Um, we're there to see what are the human rights issues, what are the systemic issues, and how can we, you know, um, improve these. Um, we're, this is an expert, uh, independent expert assessment, um, and not, um, you know, looking from it from a business angle. Yeah, in the context. So how would you then? Mm -hmm. No, go ahead, Dora. Go ahead. In the context of the projects that we had access to in the DRC, the question was not how well are they performing? I wanted to know, is the idea of formalization a viable path forward to make mining operations safe and sustainable from the DRC? And can the formalization approach developed by some companies be scaled and replicated? So can that become the, the foundation or can they deliver insights for the development of a concrete industry standard? it gets very technical. The question, for example, is, do we allow tunnels on these mining sites? 
And how deep should those tunnels be? And for that, this is what makes human rights due diligence measurable. You can measure the depth of a tunnel, 10 meters, 30 meters, what is considered safe? So these are the um, aspects that need to be brought up and then discussed in a multi-stakeholder context. And just, uh, it, it really goes far beyond a rather superficial, we conducted human rights due diligence claim of companies. Instead, they would have a standard where they say, on our mind sites, we have no children because of those measures, we have no tunnels because of that decision, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes it concrete what human rights due diligence means. Uh, you've definitely touched on some of this um, since the question's been posed, but perhaps you'd like to expand a little from uh, Chris Yankee from the International Business Department at the University of South Carolina. Can you please give examples of the data you collected and analyze qualitative versus interviews, or rather via interviews, findings from your literature review, surveys of stakeholders, et cetera? Sarah, do you want to answer first or should I go first? Go first and I'll add. Yeah. So in the first phase, we pulled together anything that was available publicly and the knowledge hub that Sarah created actually invites others to use the same material and add to our collection of material. So we wanted to publish the pooled resource, resources that we use to learn about this uh, issue. Um, to facilitate access for other researchers to come in and look at, um, you know, this uh, challenge as well. And in addition, um, we conducted before my trip a number of interviews with industry and civil society organizations to actually arrive in the field well prepared of an understanding of where the front line lies in terms of there were big differences between companies and how they how they saw uh, responsible sourcing from the Congo. Um, interestingly, big differences, you know, between companies that all claimed to source responsibly. There was Glencore that said we source responsibly, but we don't allow for artisanal miners to be part of the process. There was Trafigura and other companies that said, no, we understand uh, artisanal mining is you know, a, a fact, uh, uh, something that we can't just close our eyes over in the DRC and we need to find solutions that come with that um, portion of the industry. And um, the qualitative data really helped us to go into the field and then ask much more interesting questions, I think, to people on the ground. Um, and coming back again, we had another round of interviews, sort of debriefing from round one, often with the same companies again. So Glencore I interviewed before I left and after I returned. Um, interestingly, Glencore has now turned around 180 degrees on their position in artisanal mining. Um, they always denied that they have artisanal miners on their sides, but I also sent them a couple of photos I took of artisanal miners on their mining concessions. And I said, you may not like this, but this is happening. And I think many others did so too. And now they're actually part of the Cobalt Action Partnership to develop common standards for ASM. So there's a concrete you know, impact, not because of us, but we also asked those questions to them and had a before and after interview in a way with them. And I think that maybe reached for them company internally a tipping point where they reconsidered their, posi their position on ASM. Um, so those engagements um, and those interviews, I think are 
already part of the impact creation as well, because you develop very personal relationships with some of your interview partners. You try to understand their position and, you know, reflect uh, with them on what others have said. And um, for me, this was certainly uh, incredibly interesting, but I'm not sure if I fully answered your question. Um, I can add a few things. So we also looked at every, like not every single, but a lot of different news articles uh, from different uh, resources, different languages. Uh, we also looked at, for example, the price, the demand relationship, uh, some uh, quantitative data we looked at. We understood, for example, from the, the, the demand uh, versus the price of cobalt, that there was something called <clears throat> these, um, what do we call them, Dora? The, the demand that basically uh, people, the miner is moving from farming to, um, to uh, or to different Swing minerals capacity. as the price of, sorry? Swing, Swing capacity. Exactly, that's the term I'm looking for. The swing capacity of miners um, all depended on the price and we, you know, we established those um, interrelationships, uh, inter interrelation, uh, inter yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, those are like some other things that we looked at. Um, hundreds of news articles, different reports, uh, different investigative reports, obviously Amnesty International report from 2016 and the follow-up of 2017. We looked at different projects. There were, for example, a lot of uh, innovative projects on blockchain, but we specifically left that out because um, uh, traceability was not our focus area in this research. Um, I'm just thinking what else, but yeah, I think that's what I could add. Maybe just another vignette of you know where where I saw change happening um, after Mike's Forbes piece, um, which mm -hmm. actually asked Tesla to come to the table of that multi-stakeholder consortium. Tesla is now part of the Cobalt Action Partnership uh, through an intermediary, but they're there. So calling out companies that should join, you know, to come to the table and figure out what a common standard for sourcing um, from artisanal mine sites in the DRC should look like. Um, sometimes it works and they actually then come on board. So. I, I wanna read another comment that's come through from, uh, from Chris following on from that question. It says there's good news on the challenge of doing impact related work as a trade-off or substitute to publication that most academics need as a required part of the job. More journals are either created to give empirical work like this an outlet or an increasingly welcoming uh, of this kind of work. The AOM Discoveries is an example of the first strategic management journal and management science are examples of the latter top quality journals that are increasingly looking for rigorous case studies that do not have to be motivated by the normal theory testing approach. Uh, thanks again to Chris. And, and there's, a, there's a question that's come through from the uh, Q&A uh, along similar lines from Mohammed Akbari, who says, quite impressive and critically needed work. Bravo for doing research that is much needed and relates to the real world needs. It's unfortunate that such a work is not given academic credit. What is the rationale for this, that it's not a referred publication? <laughs> I think Chris, you know, uh, who, whose comment you read before, I think answers this partly in that I also think academic publications are changing and there's a growing interest in the type of work that we do. Um, I occasionally still, you know, prepare our insights for academic contributions. Um, but it's a question of time resources. I mean, all of you publish in academic journals know that this is 
hard work. Um, and uh, I can tell you the work that we do is hard work too and doing both is just often not possible. But I wish I'd have colleagues that would like to partner with me and I could provide them with the empirical data from our work and then they do the academic publication framing to it. So I would be absolutely open to that because I would also love to um, contribute to the academic debate. Um, so it, it's not something that I don't want to do. It's just I don't have the time resources to do that on top of everything else. So if there is someone uh, on this webinar motivated to um, use our empirical um, insights or the Wettbein paper as the foundation for an academic publication, I, I would love to support this. Um, and I do think the academic publications are also changing. They have greater interests yeah, in the type of work that we do. Um, but of course, change is slow and um, we cannot wait for this to happen. So in the meantime, we will self-publish our work in the form of reports um, and write publicly about our research insights in the form of op-eds, et cetera, because we've also seen it being really impactful um, in the context of the NYU Stern work. Um, some of you may be familiar with the work I've done on the garment industry in Bangladesh, which is based on three reports and then Ethiopia. Um, my colleagues have at NYU have published extensively on the role of human rights in the tech industry. And so, these reports are cited by journalists. They are read and um, you know, taken notice of by company uh, representatives. And we've had fantastic, interesting engagements with company representatives that did reconsider in some cases their positions um, and wanted to work closer with us and engage more with us to understand what's at stake. So, um, and yet I do want to emphasize this is very different from a paid consultant role because we don't, we are not getting paid for these engagements with companies ever. And I would also like to yeah. add that the, that our World Economic Forum white paper was referred to in an academic uh, paper very recently. Um, yeah. So there is, um, yeah references in, in the academic world to a paper like ours that is not academic. There yeah, a number of questions of interest. Was, sure, the, just quick moment, the Bangladesh reports from NYU Stern are actually widely cited in academia, so. There are a number of questions of interest regarding the nature of the kind of uh, multi-stakeholder engagement. Uh, Alicia says, do you have any wisdom to share from all of your experiences about the best practices when engaging with stakeholders? What about private actors in particular? Any advice on gaining access to businesses to do impactful business and human rights research? I don't think there is a uh, one cut all formula for those engagements. I think in those engagements, it always has to be clear that you're not paid by these actors in any way. And it's it's actually important for many of them that you um, underline your independence. Um, and that also, that makes your arguments a lot more credible. Um, and in the multi-stakeholder setting that we are currently in, I think there are many commercial hidden interests actually at play. And we are certainly unpaid uh, for this activity. And that gives us a different weight, you know, in our arguments. And I, I think that's, really useful. However, of course, um, we also, you know, the Geneva Center also needs funding and it creates challenges for us to figure out a funding model um, that is acceptable um, and does not touch our academic independence. 
it's certainly something that we are adamant about, yet it's in practical terms difficult. I'm mindful, very mindful of time, because I know Doro especially is running between, between classes and we've got about two minutes remaining. Uh, there's a question from Samantha who says, very interesting point, Doro, about how Glencore changed their position on, on artisanal miners. This is something that NGOs have been working on for many years, and yet the relationship between artisan miners and mining companies has remained fraught. What makes the work of academic research centered different in driving change? And has the work of NGOs before that perhaps um, carved a space for change now. Mm. So you know the difficulties that companies often have to engage with NGOs um, because it's it's almost like there is um, they're the pulling up walls you know between those two entities and it's harder to engage. So academia has a huge advantage in that it's a more neutral platform um, to reach out to very different stakeholders in an interest to establish facts, you know, and then synthesize. And um, that neutrality, I think, is important in those conversations. It makes it much easier to engage with companies with the premise to be constructive and support them in the development of, sust of sustainable business models. I mean, that's the premise of our work at the Geneva Center. Uh, we don't want to do naming or shaming, you know, there's a role for that too. And that's what some of the civil society organizations do. Um, but we're sort of in the middle where we say, no, we want to, uh, you know, establish the facts and we may refer to a civil society report and saying, well, actually the entire cobalt work was kicked off by a 2016 Amnesty report that really got the attention of many companies to realize we have to do something about these issues. But then what to do about it, you know, this more solutions oriented um, engagement, they often have no one to turn to. And I think academia, you know, can be helpful here. And after all, we are at a, we are at a business school, we're management scholars, and if framed the right way, I also think these human rights challenges are solvable business management challenges. So in that spirit, we're engaging with those companies to see how can we support them in the development of alternative business models. My thanks to both Doro and Sarah for their time, and I encourage you to check out more of the work being done at the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights. To attend our cross-border webinars and catch up with more of the work we do here at the Global Business School Network, please visit gbsn.org. If you've enjoyed your listening experience, please remember to rate, click, and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, take care.